Hey, this is Annie. And Samantha. And welcome to Stuff I Never Told You, production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Today, we're talking about dutiful daughters and dutiful children. Um, and, and this one is personal for me because um, I recently lost my father and uh, so it's going to be a little anecdotal and a little selfish, to be honest. Um, nah. And trigger warnings for terminal cancer and illness, death, and grief. And I also want to just say at the top, one of my defense mechanisms is humor. So right, uh, <laughs> I might sound insensitive. I'm generally not. Right. Generally not. As I've said on past podcasts, my father was diagnosed with terminal cancer Several years ago, um, a couple of weeks ago, he was not doing well, and he died. In fact, as I was, I was typing up this outline, I got a text from my mom, and she hardly ever texts, that said, I should come home right now because he might not have much more time. And she was right because the day I was supposed to go home, um, the same day I was supposed to come in and record this, right. he died. Um, I was actually like about to leave the apartment, and I... I wanted to talk about the role of dutiful daughter, but we actually planned this yeah, before a while ago. that happened, right. um, and how it ripples out and it hits everything else in your life, and also what happens when that relationship is complicated. Exactly. And um, I had to go through and change everything to the past tense in this outline. So if it's wonky, that's why it won't be wonky. I kept the original one to compare it to because I'm weird and also because I accidentally captured my immediate before and my immediate after what I thought was going to happen and what actually happened. And um, a lot of people, when they found out this happened, they would always they would ask, "Was it sudden?" And it reminds me of my favorite Buffy quote uh, when Tara says about death, "It's always sudden." Right. So we do have some numbers here, some not-so-specific personal numbers. Um, yeah, because we, we did want to highlight this is something that impacts a lot of us. About 44 million U.S. adults care for an older family member or friend. And a lot of these caregivers spend 20 hours a week on this task, a part-time job equivalent. This can lead to caregiver burnout. And a lot of women do this care, about 66%. The responsibility a woman feels to be a caregiver for an aging parent or guardian is sometimes called the dutiful daughter syndrome. Estimates place the value of the unpaid informal care. Women do it $148 billion to $188 billion. It impacts work hours and wages as well as up to 41% of middle-aged women caregivers experience this. If you're taking time off to provide the care... It impacts work hours and wages as well. About 41% of middle-aged women caregivers experience this. And with that, if you're taking time off to provide care and promotions and other job opportunities. So women who do this care are 2.4 times more likely than those who don't to live in poverty. Single women have even less options when it comes to public programs or providing care. The estimated total cost of female caregiving when it comes to Social Security benefits and lost wages is 324000 and $44. That's a lot. That's a lot. The negative impact on a retirement fund for caregivers, $40,000 or more for $40,000 more for women as compared to men on average. There's a high cost for businesses too. $3.3 billion in lost jobs to women who had to quit and $327 million in absenteeism or arriving late, leaving early, long lunch breaks. With the federal mandates for family paid leave and family paid time off, people lose a lot of money because they can only 
they they only get reimbursed a certain amount of times, mm-hmm. and it's amazing. And as, as in fact, there's oftentimes in contracts where you'll lose your job after a certain amount of uh, absentees, and even if it is a family emergency, Oof. it's pretty high on that one. And then there are the negative health consequences for the caregivers too, especially when it comes to things like depression and anxiety, up to six times more likely to experience these things than non-caregivers. So there's a lot of social isolation. And then, of course, it, this hits women of color even more and lower-income women even more. I read so many how-to-deal-with-family-dynamics-when-an-elderly-parent-is-dying articles, and I got to say, my situation is slash was apparently not that bad because um, there were tips like expect the worst from your siblings, from your parents, from your spouse. <laughs> uh, also, I should clarify, I was on the lighter end of this caregiving. I did do a lot of you know, working from home and lawyer appointments and doctor appointments and things like that. But my mom, who was younger than my dad, um, she did most of it. And um, a a part of this, I have always felt a kind of responsibility to my parents. I call every Sunday. In college, I came home every other weekend. Nowadays, I do it about once a month, and I wanted to ask if you had a similar experience. I would say for my family, so there's myself, an older sister, and two older brothers, and my oldest sister is probably the main point of contact. She's not the oldest of all of us. There's like an older brother, my sister, another brother, and then I'm the youngest. And my brother and I are about, the younger brother and I are about seven months apart because I'm adopted and they are not. Mm -hmm. But um, she is the point of contact and would be the one that does more of this than I do. I think if I get any updates from the family, it's from my sister um, and my mother, of course. But when it comes in regards to like taking care of my parents and as they get older, who's responsible for what. And again, my parents were really young when they started having children, so they're still kind of on the younger side and they're healthy. Mm -hmm. There's no no ailments Mm -hmm. that um, would bring us to come out about and having to take care of them outright. So I will say for me, I have the lesser responsibility Mm -hmm. because my older sister takes on that. Sure. So it's definitely another female for sure, but it's not me. Yeah, and a lot of articles I read did come to that conclusion that in families with siblings, um, it's usually if there is a woman... It's usually her. Right. Not always, though. Right. Um, and for me, when I would call my parents, I found I, I would speak for like 40 minutes with my mom and like two minutes with my dad. Right. And it was always kind of this um, update on, you're doing something to make me proud, right? Yay, so proud. And I will say that is the number one thing people tell you at a funeral is, your dad was proud of you. Oh. Yeah, <laughs> which I, I did find uh, interesting. And and one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this, other than selfish reasons, is when this first happened, when I first found out, and then think like when I first found out my dad was sick, and then when our relationship got complicated, which I'll go into a little bit more later, um, I did. There are resources out there. There are a lot of resources out there. Right. But I kind of wanted something more personal or or. Just something like, what is this like? What does it feel like? Because right. it doesn't, it's complicated. And it, it, you feel weird because of that. Because there's so many emotions swirling around and yeah. you, you don't. Obviously, sickness and, and death and family, there's nothing black and white about it. Absolutely. So, for, for the history section, it's a history about me. And um, it's, it's about me and my dad's illness and also kind of a question I get a lot is how did I get this job? Um, which is seemingly a fun, safe question, and I don't, don't, I don't get mad when people ask it. 
But <laughs> for me, it always comes with this knowledge that I don't necessarily share all the time, that it's because largely my dad was diagnosed with terminal cancer um, because I, I, I went to college to become a spy. Oh, I, I remember the story. <laughs> yes. This, I, is, this is one of those moments of like, oh, who are you? Are you real? Are you for real, for real? Are you a character from a novel? Maybe I am a spy. Think, Maybe this is all a cover. Uh, or a diplomat. I just, I really wanted to travel and, you know, I had big ideas of helping with peace, although I guess being a spy would not really have been beneficial. It could have been. Um, anyway, every summer I got a job in a different country in some type of government nonprofit, and I spent my junior year in China. And at first, I hated it. Oh, God, I hated it. Because um, no one spoke English, no signs. Uh, our menus were in English or pinyin, which is kind of the anglicized when it's written in right. English, even if it's kind of how it sounds. Um, and no one understood my not very good Mandarin. I don't blame anyone for that. <laughs> I'm not mad that they didn't have anything in English. I was just kind of misled. I was sort of led to believe that it would have been. So I remember very clearly crying alone in my apartment because I was supposed to be there like six, eight months uh, with a bowl of a cold, cold bowl of cup of noodles, and I was eating it with the handle of a comb and a toothbrush because I was too embarrassed to go out in public or attempt to ask for chopsticks. <laughs> also, I really should have boiled that water, and I paid for that later. Oh, um, But then I fell in love. I fell in love. I learned. I met friends. I found a tribe. I got bolder and braver, and I really did not want to leave. Um, my questionable tribal tattoo... I got that because the my best friend, one of my best friends that I met there, um, we just randomly picked a tattoo to remember each other by because we thought we would never see each other again. And I feel things really, really strongly, and I, I think that's great, right? But it is painful. Mm-hmm. Um, so when people ask me what it means, I always say it means I met a once in a lifetime friend in China, and then the people in China they offered me a job, a forever job. And I decided I wanted it. I wanted to move to China, but I had to go back to the U.S. first and graduate early and get the documentation. And also, a very long story, but I was in China legally, technically. Right. Um, and moved my stuff. And that was my plan. And I kept this plan for my parents because I knew they would not approve. And I graduated early, and to this day, that is one of my biggest regrets because I didn't declare early enough. It's strange how it works here. Um, I did not get all all the minors and certificates that I earned, and it would cost me too much to go back to school just to declare and get them. Uh, I got the documentation, though. I got an apartment in China, and then I told my parents. And they told me, hey, your dad has terminal cancer, and when you come back, you might be visiting a tombstone. And my mind went totally blank, and all my plans, all my plans, and the future, I had been so excitedly preparing it fell away, and I was told he had five to eight years. So now I was torn because I had friends telling me you have to live your own life, you can't drop everything, and I had other people telling me, you know, family is everything, you need to treasure this time. Meanwhile, (laughs) years ago, when I years ago, years ago, so even years ago within this past tense, um, when I was in high school, I had applied to uh, a job online at the How Stuff Works office in Atlanta. And at the time, I wanted to make documentaries. The response I got was, lols, <laughs> you're too young. Apply again. We really like your enthusiasm. And I never did apply again because I lost hope that I could ever make money off of that. 
And um, I, I swear, I swear, the final week before I had to make the decision to move to China or not to move to China, I get a call from the House Stuff Works office in Atlanta. And I hadn't updated my resume, hadn't reapplied. This was out of the blue. But they wanted me to come in for an interview. When I told my parents about this, they were ecstatic. I'm sure. <laughs> yes. You have to go. They said, you have to. You've wanted to do this since high school. And if you get the job, you could stay and be close in, in case something happens to your dad. And of course, I went into the interview thinking, I have no qualifications. <laughs> I'll never get this. Um, but I was enthusiastic and I was prepared. And Jerry, yes, from Stuff You Should Know, mm-hmm. she interviewed me and she hired me. And I did accept it in part because I was super excited and in part because at the time it was an internship and I thought that, you know, when it's up, I could go to China then. I still had technically to wait for graduation um, and this internship was college credit and in part because I did feel a responsibility to be close to home in case. And because I'm a quick learner and fun to work with, if I don't say so much. You are. You're fun to work with. <laughs> Thank you. Um, uh, just the best all around. Yes. Um, when the internship was up, I got offered a full-time job. And again, I had to wrestle with this decision. Except now, I had a job and coworkers I adored in Atlanta and one in China. So, eventually, I gave up my apartment in China. Surprise, surprise, because you're listening to this podcast. And accepted the full-time position. But I did and still do suffer from a massive case of imposter syndrome, and I thought I would be fired at any time. That was super replaceable. We're going to go into this more in an in a upcoming podcast. And um, that combined with the fact that my dad was sick, that convinced me to stay, to move back into my parents' house. So for three years, I commuted three hours a day on a 7 a.m. to 3 p.m. schedule to avoid traffic as much as possible. I had no social life. Mm-mm. My mom and I became super close, though, and I do—I really do treasure that, and I don't regret it at all. Even though you, sometimes I wonder, like, if, how things could have been, right? If I had gone on this other trail, what alternate timeline, Annie? What is she doing? Um, and I felt a real responsibility to keep everyone happy, and I think this is and has been my role in my family. And I—I'm the one that makes people laugh. That's fun. That doesn't cause trouble. As I've said, I've had, I have difficulty expressing negative emotion. I felt like this was my job, to hide any distress I was feeling and to keep everyone happy. But it took a toll, and eventually I couldn't do it anymore. Um, even though I felt extremely guilty, I moved out, and then I moved to Atlanta. Um, and that's kind of the overarching thing I feel for so many things we talk about with women, but uh, when it comes to this, is guilt. Like, I, I feel guilty for even talking about this. I, I feel like I'm fishing for sympathy or something. Um, but I'm doing it anyway. Good for you. Yes. But then, of course, things got even more complicated because that's life for you. But before we get into that, we're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. All right. So as the years went by, Things got worse. It, it was like my dad became a different person, and he he did things that were very hurtful. And I don't want to talk too much about it, but this really complicated our relationship and his relationship with the rest of my family. And I've said it before on the show, I believe people can do all 
kinds of impressive mental Olympics to convince themselves that they are the hero in their own story. And him, as a dying man, he was doing nothing wrong. Even though he lost his job, he lost his friends, we were being the unreasonable ones. And um, he and I had a huge falling out. He believed I wasn't sad enough for him or not sad in the right way. And it's really hard. This is when I, I wish there had been a resource for me. Right. And that there are, but I don't know if, like, at the time I couldn't find anything. And I even thought about doing, like, a video show, but then I thought if my family sees. Right. Because um, it's really hard to accurately capture everything I felt. I was terribly sad, but I didn't know how to express it or what to say, and I was hurt and confused and furious, so furious. I felt like my dad, the man I knew, had died and in his place was a shell who was hurting me, the people I loved, over and over and over. And I got angrier and angrier as years passed and his behavior continued. I don't know what it's like to live with terminal cancer, and I don't know what it does to you, but when you're being hurt over and over by someone you you respected, it's hard not to get angry. Right. And I, I will say I was relieved when no one blamed my mom for staying with him because it was kind of, there's a word, it's, I think it's Spanish. There's a word in Spanish, I think, for this when there's kind of a secret that everyone knows but no one discusses. Everyone knew this was happening and no one was talking about it. But I was glad no one blamed my mom for staying with him because I, I expected that. Um, I've seen it over and over. Right. Uh, but no one really did, to my knowledge. And again, I, I felt guilty. I thought it was my fault if I hadn't moved to Atlanta. Maybe none of this would have happened. I could have kept everyone together, kept everyone happy. I felt such overwhelming guilt and failure. Um, and I I just had this, this dutiful daughter. Like, I thought I had to keep the family together, and I failed at it. And I was guilty at how angry I felt at a dying man, and I kept telling myself, I'll be so relieved when he dies. I felt guilty for even admitting that aloud. And I felt guilty for making this about me uh, when he's the one that died. But now, a human person, I think I would have felt better if I had known what I was going through was pretty normal. Or at least I wasn't the only one. Right. No, I think it's absolutely normal. And I would back you into saying that it's there's a lot of complications. And I know you and I talked about this a few weeks ago when we sat down and said, just because someone dies doesn't erase their past behavior. Yeah. And yes, we mourn and, and we will we should never, you know, put that aside as to the good that they have done and, yeah. and to celebrate who they were, hopefully, in some of the ways in their lives. But also it doesn't erase the pain and the hurt that yeah. can happen in between. And you have to be able to process that. Mm-hmm. And to push it aside is unhealthy as well. And that's for any daughter. That whole idea of keeping things together or being the peacekeeper and being the glue, yeah. that's damaging in itself. Um, and, and you and I talked, we would talk, I used the word parentification. Yeah. And I had to explain what that was when a child becomes the parent and mm-hmm. trying to take care of others and, and they are no longer children. Mm-hmm. It's kind of that same idea when they take on the responsibility of I should have been this yeah. in this family when that should have never been asked of you. Yeah. But anyway. Yeah. And we do have a, a future episode coming up on um, like tips for for helping someone who's going through a hard time, right. including grief. And um, one of them is, uh, I, and I thought this was really interesting, don't over-sanitize someone's memory. Right. Um, but future episode, <laughs> future episode. Um, so another part of this, this guilt that I was feeling, is both not being able to help my mom as much as I felt like I should and also not being able to do my best at work because I'm juggling these doctor's appointments and lawyer's appointments and just being there when things are bad. 
and now grief itself. Um, on nights out with friends, I would get a text about my family situation. I would feel this upswell of such grief, and it was something that I put on myself. But I don't. I I think societally we do expect that women we put more of an expectation on them to 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 be a part of these things, to be there for that stuff. And and thus we're set up to feel guilt. Um, and, and another part I wanted to mention to this uh, that I didn't really see anywhere but was such a big part of my experience is the just anxiety every time you get a text or an email or phone call, anything. Because that really takes a toll, especially like as the years go on. Right. Ooh, um, and not to mention <laughs> when you're on a podcast and you need to be on and you've just gotten terrible news or, or you, you've got to find a place to cry where no one will hear you and that's become a whole thing in this office. <laughs> I'll tell you what, there's not a lot of space. <laughs> We're growing too big so there's no private space to sleep or cry. There are many threads going on about it right now, <laughs> no joke. Um because you don't want people to think you're being emotional, right. heaven forbid. And the guilt of even having the thought when asked to help out your dying father, and you think, but I have all this work to do. That, ugh, it just, yeah. And then you end up for going sleep and working all hours of the night because you want to do both. And I felt guilty asking for help um, or asking people to reschedule things. There's one infamous episode where I was sobbing before I came in to record, did the episode, left smile on my face, was sobbing immediately after, and every time I think of that episode, I am both sad and impressed. And I can't even imagine what it was like for my mom. She she couldn't leave the house towards the end unless she could find a sitter. Um, my dad couldn't really walk anymore, so she slept on the couch, and he just wasted away um, before our eyes. And I, I, I just feel it's guilt for everything, everything right now. Um... And I did want to talk about performative grief because this is something that's been really big even before this for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I do not grieve in a way that many find acceptable, especially for women. I usually don't cry, at least not at first. Um, I get angry. I get pissed off. Um, and I have been called out by people for not behaving appropriately. Like even the fact that I'm doing this, I feel like I'm going to get called out for not I'm being sure. sad enough. I'm sure. Um, and I have seen a lot of grief in my day, and I can tell you, it looks different for everyone. So don't assume people aren't feeling pain because it doesn't look like how you think it should look. Um, and this is ex- especially tricky when you have had a bad relationship with someone and some know it and some don't because you get dinged for not grieving enough or grieving too much or pretty much just told how you should feel about the whole situation. Right. I think overall grief has become such a blanket overall that they think that it assumes it's one thing. Mm-hmm. And then you got to zone in and realize you as an individual, you may not even know how you should react. So therefore, why would anybody else react? You know, yeah. understand it for you, yeah. I think. And I, for me, I know for grief, it, many of the times I have a shutdown period yeah. where I don't realize what's happening. Mm-hmm. And that might be me being dazed and confused, literally, <laughs> where I'm just kind of numbly walking, again, mm-hmm. numb, being numb, yeah. or being angry, as some say. Or me, sometimes I just need to be distracted. Yeah, And I don't think people understand, this is a thing. I know, like, when you, again, coming back to you and I talking, I'm like, what do you need? Which mm-hmm. type of person are you? Right. And I will be that person that you need. And that's the understanding is that this is not, again, um, necessarily a right or wrong, mm-hmm. but it's just what you need at that time, and that's okay. Yeah, and that's something I read a lot, too, is 
the stages of grief, that thing that we all know is kind of misleading because it, it's just, it bounces all over. And right. it might not, you might not get all those. You might get all of them and then more. It's, right. it's complicated. <laughs> uh, I will say, like, my body at first, when I was going through this, it was doing all kinds of weird things. Like, I was floating or falling. Like, I had that swooping, dropping feeling in my stomach all the time. I was shivering. I was, like, crying in trances. And I, I had this, like, pretzel position I kept getting in. Um, and in my mind, it was doing, like, the possession montage scene in movies. Like, you hear the screaming, and then that turns into the train, and then that turns into another thing, and it just... <laughs> <laughs> uh, everything feels really volatile and loud and like I can't quite catch any thought before it, it would fall away and it would lead into something else. I didn't leave my apartment for a week and I had almost a panic attack response to going outside for the first time. <laughs> and my neighbors, they were, I heard them outside my door whispering in kind of the fake movie voice, do you think she's okay? <laughs> <laughs> um, and then I made I made the worst movie yeah, watching. You, you really did. I watched The Lion King. The day of, right? Yes. And I'm like, why did you watch well, The I, Lion I, King? I, like two minutes in, I thought, oh no, but I'm <laughs> too tired to even do anything about it. Um, and things things feel really precious in a way that they didn't before. Like, I keep seeing this little funeral pamphlet, and I don't know what to do with it. Right. I've got to do something right. with it. Um, and, and through this process, I have had to battle with myself a lot when it comes to to feeling weak or, um, or allowing myself to grieve or to have space and having it be okay to ask people for help. And you have been great, Samantha. <laughs> and so have so many of my friends and coworkers. But it is like a constant battle because I'm always... And I feel, again, a lot of a lot of people, and especially women, do feel like I can't miss work or I have so much to do and I can't take this time. And then there's another part of me like, no, take this time. Right. And well, it's there's just, this whole like need to care for others. So mm-hmm. trying to care for yourself is really difficult or asking to care for yourself is a really difficult road to go to. And I think most women understand that. When you are the main focal point of being the center of caring or giving or, or propping someone up, and then all of a sudden you need it. Yeah. You don't even know where to go to, how to do it, what that looks like mm-hmm. for you as an individual who, and I will say for me, person who tries to be independent all the time and, yeah. and clear, like, clearly argue with people and be like, I don't need you. Stop, <laughs> stop that. Um, to ask for help feels like weakness because yeah. for so long I feel like I've had to prove my strength and strength yeah. being independence or being the one who helps others. Asking for help feels so vulnerable and oddly yeah. open and you don't know how to react to that mm-hmm. when you have been fiercely clinging to, I am independent, I am fine, I didn't know I can be single and do this and this. Right. Of course, that's just from my own like viewpoint because yeah. I, as a single independent person, is like, no, I don't need you. I don't need mm-hmm. no persons. But at the same time, you know, if you are a caregiver, once again, the one who's been a shoulder for people to lean on, to ask for that seems really, really foreign. It does. It absolutely does. And I just kept having this over overarching thought of like, I don't want to bother anybody. <laughs> right, which I think I yelled at you a lot about. You did, you did. Um, <laughs> I say yell. I was nice about it. You were. Although I kind of did yell. Firm. I was firm. There it is. You with were a face. Firm. Did I have the mom face when I said that to see you? I feel yeah. like I did, didn't and I? And you got in that position, like you stifled your fingers. I did, didn't I? <laughs> you <laughs> leaned in. Sorry, that's my like, social work <laughs> phase. I'm sorry. I appreciated it. Uh, and this whole thing kind of reminds me of... Um, how in Midsummer the movie, no spoilers, but the main character keeps running away to hide from the other characters while she grieves. Like she goes and hides in like a closet on the plane. She gets in the plane bathroom um, because she doesn't feel like she can share that part 
of herself with others or be that vulnerable with others. Um, and yeah, I think the day after my dad died, I had this surprise party to go to. And I've thought about this a lot um, because I was the decoy and mm-hmm. we'd been planning it for months and finally, finally, finally got the person to bite. And then my mom told me she she wanted, she didn't want me to come home until the day of the funeral. So that meant I did have this day free. I don't know if that was mom code. I'm still not sure. Um, so I went to the party and I pulled it off and it was a performance of a lifetime. But I keep thinking about the fact that I felt like I had to, right. like I had to be strong um, and to me, that shows just how much we look down upon expressing emotions or voicing our needs, um, that we see that as weakness. Mm-hmm. And I do. I did have fun. It was right. 90s theme. I wore my Space Jam jersey. I was a hit. Of course you were. But I think that right. we, we've turned it into such a... A weakness, really, and it's right. it's not. Well, that's the whole idea between being a dutiful daughter, doing your duty, and yeah. being that as the caretaker or the strong person or the um, quiet, supportive type, whatever it is, whatever that dutiful daughter looks like. That, for me, I feel like I've disappointed my fam- family, my father, left and right because mm-hmm. I'm no longer this religious individual who at one point in time I was like, I'm going to be a missionary and I'm going to do this and this and I'm going to tell people about Jesus, <laughs> which is all great and well if you do this with love and kindness. But we've come to such an impact that I feel like I disappoint my dad a mm. lot and not be, and it's not so much that I feel like he, I'm obligated to him for something mm-hmm. or, um, and our relationship was not rocky in the sense of like, he's not a selfish man in that realm um, of he will love his family. His family will always come first to him. Like, I, I know that for a fact, and that's not, that's something that I think is beautiful. However, because this huge divide politically and religiously, you can tell he's disappointed that I'm not his quote-unquote little girl. Yeah. You know, and that's, that's it can get painful. And I feel like I have to hide things right. from him because I've already disappointed him just being me. <laughs> yeah. And it gets difficult because, therefore, your duty is to p- portray a character. Right. And it gets hard. Oh, for sure. Like I said, when I was at the wake, everything, everybody kept coming up to me and saying, he's so proud of you. And I kept thinking, I'm not sure he knew me. Mm-hmm. And that's not a great thought mm-hmm. to have. Yeah. But you feel like and one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this is because in therapy, it kept coming up that I had this guilt, such guilt about not being there for my family. And she was like, you, you, you've taken on this dutiful daughter thing too much. Right. But I've seen it in so many of my other friends as well. Right. And yeah, I just felt this duty for my dad in particular, like to make him proud, not rock the boat, make him happy. And I can't, I, I don't think that was the best for a healthy relationship. Right. Well, we have a little bit more for you. But first, we have one more quick break for a word from our sponsor. back. Thank you, sponsor. So, um, for this whole experience, I just, this is so surreal right now, this whole thing. Uh, <laughs> I was never afraid of death before, but seeing my dad, he was in a hospital bed in our living room towards the end, and he slept most of the day, and he watched movies, 
And he said, like, this could be the last time I closed my eyes. And he was watching this old Sherlock Holmes movie. And that has stuck with me so much. Um, and just this feeling I, of oh, being there and, and moments being so fleeting and precious. And you don't know. You don't know until it happens. Um, and and right before, a few weeks before my dad died, um, there she my therapist said, if there's something you want to say, now is the time to say it. And I couldn't think of anything, and I feel guilty about that, too. <laughs> um, I kept hoping something would come to me, and almost everything I've read says you will look back and regret if you weren't there for said person, if you didn't try to mend fences. So I will see. I think that's too easy in scapegoating, mm-hmm. to be honest, because that's not fair uh, for so many individuals who did not have the opportunity to do so or who do not have the relationships to do so because do you really want to end with something that is argumentative? Is that any better? You yeah. know, your last words were, were an argument mm-hmm. or something along those lines. And, and I think there's one thing about making peace with things, and I think it's too easy to be like, you need to do this and yeah. you have to do this. And, and regret is always going to be there. There's never going to be any time you're not going to regret something yeah. in the story. Yeah. You can be the smartest and the best relationship, whatever, but you're going to wish you had done dot, dot, dot. Right. So that's bullshit. <laughs> I'm Samantha just gonna lay that out calls there. It like it is. I'm sorry. I think I think it's just too easy to say that because death is final, mm-hmm. obviously. And if anything is final, there's going to be a point of regret or something that you're going to miss or something that I wished you could happen. That's just it's just always going to be. Mm-hmm. It's just always going to be. Yeah. Yeah. And again, one of the whole reasons I wanted to do this was because you don't really. Again, th- that's what I found. Online, this was the advice I found. And I think that is, for a lot of people, probably great advice. And if you do, if there's any part of you that wants to mend fences. Sure. But sometimes... It just ends. Sometimes that's just how it is. Some things are unhealthy. Some things are. Some things are. Um, And, yeah, the fact that we've been doing, like, this whole the trauma thing alongside this, it's gotten all tied up and complicated. <laughs> um, but I do hope that I remember the good things. Um, our relationship was always a little complicated, but he did raise me. He gave me good memories. And I loved him. And towards the end, I hated him. And I loved him. And because relationships and people are complicated, that's been really hard to reconcile. And I guess I really hoped the hate would inoculate me more, but it just made things harder. And I thought I was going to come up with something really wise about that, but that's all I have to say about it. Right. And honestly, when I was sitting with you and we were having this conversation because I met you before even this podcast yeah. on Father's Day. Oh, yes. And that was our first initial meeting. Yeah. And I hang out. You and a friend of ours came to the brewery that I was working at, and mm-hmm. we were having exchange, exchanging stories as to why we were not at home. Father's for Father's Day, Day. Yeah. and I remember you gave me your bit in my face. I think I dropped my my mouth dropped a little bit, and I was like, "What?" Um, so I di- I didn't know before all the drama happened. Mm-hmm. But the one thing you kept saying to me as you were in the middle of grief, or, and and you are in the middle, but at the very beginning is the good things that mm-hmm. you were talking about the good things, and I thought that was really beautiful because as where I was thinking like. The negative things that I heard about him, which I don't right. know this man at all, and I don't know the, <laughs> your family at all. I just know right. some of the incidents that happened that you were still clinging to 
the beauty of it. You're still trying to find the photos of you, you know, like yeah. him and oh, you. That photo. Did you yeah. find those? No. <laughs> it is in my apartment somewhere. Somewhere it's hidden. Um, um, but that's the thing. Is like that's exactly what it is. As bad as things have been, there mm-hmm. are still some good things. Um, a lot of good things, and you're an amazing woman, and oh, you have done amazing things, and and whether it's in spite of or because of, is is created, uh, yeah, a better version or the version of who you are, mm-hmm. and it's beautiful. Oh, thank you. <laughs> you are a beautiful individual, and it's okay to be confused because again, there's nothing. This is normal, mm-hmm. but there's no normal reaction. Death yes. is death is inevitable. Mm-hmm. I said it again. There we did. Yeah, you're saying inevitable a lot, lot lately. But it's true. <laughs> um, but the outside thing with that is there is no normal reaction, mm-hmm. and there's not anything that is good for one person as it is for the other person. And the likelihood of it is there's going to be so many things. Yeah. Like everything's going to be bumbled up into what the hell just happened. How am I reacting? Do I want to think about it? How do I think about it? What do I do to keep going? And at the end, I'm going to be okay. Yeah. And you're going to be okay. Thank you. You are okay. I am. You're wonderful. Oh, so are you. And I do, I really appreciate you. And I've had such a a wonderful support group. And I do not take that for granted at all. Um, Your pillow pet? Yes. You want to thank your pillow pet? My precious pillow pet. I finally met the pillow pet. Either Ruby or Rudy, depending on who you ask. Uh Um, I I do feel like I've been grieving for years. And right now, to end on uh, what I hope is kind of a weird, funny note, I feel like what I am, I'm in what I call the dolphin stage, um, where the sadness is always there and it's right below the surface. But sometimes it comes up for air and then it goes back under again. Which makes total sense to me. Uh, that was new to me. Uh, I don't know. It why. makes sense now. That's new to me. Um, or that Loki quote from Thor Ragnarok. It varies from moment to moment. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and final shout out to Harry Potter because me and my young nephew talked about it for it probably wasn't hours, but it felt like hours at the wake. He was quizzing me, me. I felt like it was finally my time to shine. Didn't you also get tipped? Because you are. I did get tipped. I made $20 <laughs> at the wake. My uncle did it in like that bribe way where he like, was like, Good put job. her here. And there was $20 in his hand. And it saved me later because I needed it for gas money. So I'm just like, wait, what? You got tipped? Yeah, apparently I was entertaining. What? Apparently, apparently. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's kind of what's been going on with me. Um, and I know that I am not alone in this. Um, and two people going through the same thing. I hope that uh, you know that you are not alone. And there are a lot of resources out there. There are a lot of support groups. I do my best to balance where I can. It's a work in progress. Everything's a work in progress. It is. It's okay. It is. And I I personally would love to hear from anybody in different countries kind of what what's different about the grieving process, if anything, um, or just any stories, advice, where we're all ears. Right. And you can email us at stuffmediamomstuff at iheartmedia.com. You can find us on Twitter at momstuffpodcast or on Instagram at Stuff I Never Told You. Thanks, as always, to our super producer, Andrew Howard. Yay! And thanks to you for listening. Stuff I Never Told You is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 